Hey, it's Martine. Before we start today's episode, I want to talk briefly about subscriptions. So if you listen to this podcast every day, you know the kinds of reporting and insights that we are able to bring you from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Maybe there's no better example of that than last week's episode about the invasion of the Capitol that took listeners inside what we all saw unfold on the news. The only way that's possible is with the support of people who subscribe to The Washington Post. That's why we're asking you, our listeners, to consider a subscription. And right now we have an exclusive offer from The Post for two years of unlimited access to everything that The Post publishes for just $59. That's $59 total for two years of stuff from The Washington Post. Subscribing to The Post is truly the best way that you can support the work that we do. We'll put a link to that offer in our show notes, or you can go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 19th. Today, the inauguration and what comes next. Plus, why the Secret Service has been paying $3,000 a month for a toilet. So, Matt Pfizer, tomorrow is the inauguration for President-elect Joe Biden, and we can already tell that it's going to be a very different inauguration. I actually drove down to basically as close to the Capitol as I could get yesterday, and it was just so weird seeing all these National Guardsmen and Humvees blocking every intersection. I mean, we usually see like a few closed streets and barriers, but this was a completely other level. I had a similar experience. I went into downtown D.C. yesterday to pick up my credential for the inauguration day, and it was similar. I mean, it was a scene of the entire downtown really shut down, streets that you could not access that normally you could access. And I've covered several inaugurations, and and usually the day of the inauguration, things are kind of shut down. It's a place that you, you kind of want to avoid, not for security reasons, but because it's crowded. But this time, you you can't even get there if, if you wanted to. So the scenes that I think we're already seeing are much different. On, on Tuesday night, there's going to be sort of a public art kind of scenario near the reflecting pool and, and the area in front of the Lincoln Memorial where there's going to be sort of a, a remembrance of the 400,000 Americans who've died from COVID. So normally that space is packed with people for a concert, for a, a giant celebration of an incoming president. This time it's marked much more somberly as a time of remembrance. And that's kind of fitting for the mood that Joe Biden has heading into his inauguration. Because for this inauguration, there are basically two big issues that have to be addressed or or worked around, right? Like there are the concerns about having crowds because of coronavirus, but then there's also the attack on the Capitol. So from what is planned for Wednesday, what are we going to see 
that is different in terms of how the inauguration actually unfolds on our televisions? So I, I think some of it will be usual. Uh, you know, Biden is going to attend a, a mass, uh, go to church on on the morning of his inauguration, uh, which presidents have have long done. You know, as part of the tradition. And I think probably that the stage that people will see on their televisions, there will still be members of Congress, there will be former presidents. It will certainly be different in that the current president will not be there. You know, there will be no car ride over. There will be no tea in the morning. You know, usually there's kind of a all of these symbolic images of the transfer of power will not happen this time. Um, and, and that has nothing to do with COVID uh, necessarily. It has nothing to do with security. It has to do with our current president, Trump, on his way out, being unwilling to participate in, in a lot of those things. But from the stage, uh, you'll still see Joe Biden. You'll still see him being sworn in. You'll still see him give an inaugural address. The images that will be different, I think, will be people will be spread out. You know, there, there will be social distancing, you know, in terms of the members of Congress who are attending. There will also be hardly any average citizens, you know, and, and mm. I think that that's going to be an image that will kind of carry the day in some ways where there will be thousands of National Guard troops, a very militaristic sort of sense of the security nature of this inauguration with with no average people, you know, sort of watching this. And so I think that that will be kind of a very unusual image for, you know, noon on Wednesday. And so while we are all anticipating what is going to be happening at the inauguration on Wednesday, we're also looking forward to what is going to be happening on Thursday, President-elect Biden's first day in office. And we've already seen some pretty expansive plans of what he intends to do on these very first days. Can you walk us through what he's outlined? Some of this will actually take place on on Wednesday after the swearing in. There, there's sort of a couple of hours there where we, he he will have time. He'll return to the White House, head into the White House for the first time. You know that will be kind of a moment for Biden. It's a place he spent a lot of time. You know, certainly as throughout his tenure as a, as a senator, visiting other presidents, and as it, for eight years as vice president. But this time he walks into that building and he is the chief. And, and so there will be a couple of hours where Biden is going to sign at least a dozen executive actions, he will immediately get the United States back into the Paris Climate Accords, which is something that Trump left uh, shortly after he took office. He will end the ban on travel from countries that are Muslim-majority countries, which President Trump put into place. He will get back into the World Health Organization. So there's a range of things that I think Biden is going to do almost immediately to signal an abrupt shift away from Trump, that there's a new president and that the new president has different priorities. And how much of what we're seeing do you think is a reflection of the fact that there will also be new control of the Senate, that these are things that he may not have necessarily proposed or tried to put into place this early on if he was going to be dealing with Republicans in Congress, but that now he has way more flexibility to do the more ambitious things? I think some of that is reflected in his $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that he's filing immediately. I don't know that that would be quite as ambitious if they did not control the Senate. They still want that to be a bipartisan bill. They're searching for Republicans to join on. But Biden is also moving very quickly toward another 
package, another legislative package that will include more spending. Hmm. He's going to outline that in February in an address to Congress. So I think in that sense, they're sort of moving on several different tracks that they can be much more ambitious now that they can pass things with just a simple majority now that they have control of the Senate. And what are some of the other ways that we see Biden trying to tackle the pandemic, both from a health standpoint and also an economic standpoint in these first days? So the big way that we're seeing that is the COVID uh, relief package. There's a lot of spending in there for testing, for vaccinations. There's going to be some spending on for taxpayers. There's the $2,000 checks to, to many Americans is in this package. The other things that Biden is doing and using as executive powers to do is a mask mandate, which he's proposed for a long time. His team has concluded that, that that there's some constitutional questions of whether he can impose a national mask mandate. So on day one, he's going to do the maximum amount that he thinks he can do, which is a mask mandate on all federal property uh, around the country and interstate travel. Uh, it's it's his way of signaling and, and making mask wearing much more of a prominent uh, message coming from the White House. He's also d- doing a rent eviction moratorium where it will extend the period so, so that people aren't kicked out of their homes, uh, you know, as a result of being unable to pay rent. So those are seen as sort of emergency things that Biden can do immediately and to use his executive powers to do it while he awaits congressional action on on a much broader package that he's proposing. What do you think are going to be some of the big challenges or hurdles that will face Biden in these first days of trying to get these things done? If there is going to be an impeachment unfolding during these early days of his presidency, is that going to distract him or Congress from being able to act on these big ambitious plans that Biden has? So talk me through some of the some of those challenges that he's going to have to be navigating. I think what's going to be interesting is to see Biden over these next few days and and him kind of having the national focus fully on him. Even after Biden won the election, was declared the winner, Trump still occupied so much attention and so much focus in questioning the results of the election. He used his Twitter account to sort of sow doubts and everything. Trump no longer has his Twitter account. And as of Wednesday at noon, he no longer has the White House as as a bully pulpit. So I think for Biden moving into the center of focus and capturing the national mood and setting the national agenda is is going to be interesting to see and and how he and whether he can do that when you say interesting is your sense that that is going to be challenging for him that he may not be able to capture that national mood and attention as as swiftly as he might want to I mean, I think it's an open question, given that the Senate is going to be moving toward impeachment proceedings, whether Biden can control the legislative agenda and what the Senate is talking about when they are potentially going through impeachment proceedings for Biden's predecessor. And then what about his cabinet? What do we know about how far along he is in creating a whole cabinet and whether those confirmations will be tricky? So. That gets at the benefits of Democrats having the Senate majority is that Biden's nominations probably will get approved. The Senate will confirm key members of soon-to-be President Biden's cabinet. Those cabinet officials in charge of national security, 
must be confirmed quickly, as well as those in charge of responding to the current health and economic crises. The question is when, <laughs> and the Senate calendar has been busy in part because of you know Republicans spending several weeks after the election still casting doubt on whether Biden actually won. The mob insurrection that diverted Congress for days also had an impact. So Biden's nominees are not as far along as the Biden people hope they should be and as far along as historically they have been. No president since George H.W. Bush in 1989 has started his first day without having a nominee confirmed. And so there has been some movement to confirm some of Biden's nominees. And in fact, there are five hearings on Tuesday to start to consider some of those nominees. So they could be confirmed soon, but it still seems unlikely that Biden will, on his first day in office, have anyone in his cabinet in place. Biden's team, on the other hand, has moved quite swiftly on filling positions throughout the other agencies, throughout the White House. He's much further along than even President Obama was at this stage in terms of filling positions that he can fill without Senate confirmation. So the Senate really is a drag at this point, but it's sort of a question of when, not if, for many of his nominees. I'm curious for you looking at this range of things that Biden has either done so far or promised to do, proposed to do in his first days, what do you think that tells you about the Biden presidency? Especially when you think about so much of how he has framed himself up until this point as a person who knows how to work with the Senate, knows how to kind of return to the old way of doing things in, in terms of negotiating and being a wheeler and dealer. And from what you've seen so far, is your sense that that is what the Biden presidency is going to look like or that he will be more in the style of President Obama or President Trump in terms of really relying heavily on executive action? I think it'll probably be a mixture. From these early days, you're getting a sense of him still trying to walk a pretty fine line that past presidents have not been able to walk, quite frankly. He is signaling some big, bold executive actions, using the full powers of the presidency to do a range of things and undo what Trump did. And then his legislative packages, I think, are indicating a little bit of both, where there are things in there that are worthy of Bernie Sanders' praise. <laughs> you know, he's responding in some ways to his own party and the energy and the divisions that still exist within it and trying to keep Democrats united. I talked to James Clyburn over the weekend, who's a top House Democrat and a close Biden ally, who was saying that Biden's challenge may be more keeping the Democratic Party united than it is seeking these bipartisan deals. The Democrats still remain kind of splintered on a lot of issues. So you're seeing in some of these initial pieces of legislation, Biden's attempts to keep Democrats together while also reaching out to Republicans and including things in these packages that he thinks will win some Republican support. And he served with about a third of the current Senate. So he does have some allies, people in the current Senate who know him, who know his style, Mitch McConnell has certainly worked with Biden in the past. So I think he's attempting to first go a bipartisan route. I mean, he's talked for a long time about the fever breaking after Trump, which has always kind of seemed a little bit naive and <laughs> like that won't happen. That there's but, no going back. The box has already been opened and you can't just put the things back in the box. 
yeah, putting the toothpaste back in the bottle would be would be kind of difficult for Biden. But he he keeps at it, you know, and I think that that is his opening bid. Is is hoping for some Republican cooperation. You know, people have compared him to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who rammed stuff through the Senate, you know, through sort of sheer force of personality. But he had Republicans willing to listen to him and willing to vote with him. I don't know in today's Republican Party if there are those Republicans willing to listen to Biden and work with Biden. And I think these those first hundred days are going to tell a lot ab- about sort of what Biden's going to be able to do and not do. Matt Visor is a White House reporter for The Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. And now one more thing. As the Trump administration is on their way out, producer Ariel Plotnik spoke with reporter Peter Jamison about two members of the Trump family and an odd wrinkle in their relationship with the people who are charged with protecting them. So this is a story about a somewhat bizarre odyssey that the U.S. Secret Service detail attached to Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, President Trump's daughter and son-in-law, have been through over the past four years. The Kushner family moved to Kalorama, which is a very wealthy enclave of Washington in January 2017. So my colleagues and I went back to Kalorama seeking to do a story about the neighborhood's feelings about the potential departure of the Kushner family. And one thing we came across in the course of our reporting is that the... Secret Service detail attached to the president's daughter and son-in-law had begun renting a basement unit in a house across the street from the Kushner family, which had a number of features that were of value. You know, it had a space for sort of a break room, place where you could sit, look at your laptop, have a cup of coffee. But above all, what made this a valuable space was that it had a bathroom. Why was that important? Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner live in a fairly large house. It has six bathrooms, one half bathroom, and six bedrooms. What we learned is that there was a restriction placed on the couple's secret service detail from the very first days of their moving into this home that the agents were not to come into their house to use the bathroom. Now, there's a dispute over where this restriction originated. What we were told by one law enforcement source is that basically the family made a request to their Secret Service detail that they not come in to use the restrooms. What the uh, White House has said is, is something different from that. When we began asking them questions for the story, they, they gave us a statement saying that, in fact, it was the idea of the Secret Service that they didn't want their agents coming in and out of the house to use the bathroom because they thought it would be inappropriate to intrude on the couple's privacy. 
So how did they solve this problem? What they did first was set up this porta potty outside. This put the family and the Secret Service detail in conflict with the neighbors. This is a very wealthy neighborhood. People aren't used to seeing a porta potty in the street. It didn't go over well. So the agents needed another solution. Next solution, we are told, is that they walked around the corner to the home of another very famous politician who lives in Calorama. That's former President Barack Obama. And the the Secret Service detail attached to President Obama had their own sort of command post with restroom in a garage belonging to the Obamas on their property. However, there was an incident where someone attached to the Trump Kushner detail apparently left the bathroom in a state that was not a pleasant one from the perspective of the Obama agents. So the Trump Kushner agents were banned from returning to that bathroom. They then went to the Naval Observatory, which is the residence of Vice President Mike Pence, and began using a bathroom up there. This is about a mile drive away at this point. We're told they would also sometimes pop into local businesses and use bathrooms there. And then finally, they settle on what was ultimately the resolution to this problem, which is to rent a bathroom and command post space from a neighbor of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. And how much are they paying for that space per month? So according to federal lease records, this lease, which began in September 2017, is $3,000 per month, $36,000 per year. We are now entering the fourth year of the lease, which is due to expire in September 2021. So at that point, the lease will have been worth $144,000, and it's already more than $100,000 that the U.S. government has paid. Would asking a Secret Service detail not to come in to their house be at odds with how presidential families have treated the Secret Service in the past? There is quite a bit of precedent for different kinds of arrangements with a Secret Service detail and its protectee. One thing that Secret Service protectees tend to have in common is that they occupy, you know, fairly expansive houses or estates. Often this doesn't even become an issue because, you know, for instance, Andy Carr, the former White House chief of staff under President George W. Bush, he lived in a Virginia neighborhood where his detail could set up a trailer at the end of the block. The Bush family themselves, they had an entire building constructed at their compound in Kennebunkport, Maine. So, you know, it's not unheard of for presidents or campaigns to use money in ways that the public thinks is, you know, frivolous or irresponsible. But is this uniquely Trumpian to you? There have been a lot of questions raised about how the Secret Service is spending money to protect the Trump family. One thing that's come up and that has been questioned by some ethics experts is the fact that The Trump children, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr., when they travel to Trump properties, they bring their secret service agents with them. And the Trump organization has actually charged the federal government for agents' accommodations in those situations. This comes against a backdrop of 
sort of repeated questions about the amount of money that is being spent by the Secret Service as it, it seeks to fulfill its duty in protecting the Trump family. Peter Jamison covers D.C. for The Post. Ariel Plotnick is an audio producer. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you have not yet subscribed to The Washington Post, now is the time. Again, listeners to this podcast can get two years of unlimited access for just $59 total. We'll include a link for that subscription deal in our show notes, or you can go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 